A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome back to History Hack. You have me, Alina, here, and the fabulous Chris is my sidekick today. Chris, who have we got on today? Afternoon, Alina. Um, we've gone for something slightly different, but we have Darren Baker, who is a medieval historian who specialises in the study of the Plantagenets, the Capos, and the de Montfort families, and has written biographies on Simon and Eleanor de Montfort, Henry III, and Eleanor of Provence. He's here to talk to us about his new book, one that caught my eye when I saw the pile, Richard of Cornwall, the English King of Germany. Uh, welcome, Darren. Oh, well, um, glad to be here. Thanks. Hi, Darren. I just, uh, just to let everybody know, we've been gossiping a little bit before we started this podcast. And we found out, wait for this one. So I've popped down to my parents for this weekend and I'm uh, out in the Biscida Mountains, so in the south of Poland, near the Czech and the Slovak border. And can anyone guess where Darren is right now? Tell us, Darren, where are you right now? I'm, I'm also in the Biscida Mountains. I'm just across the border. <laughs> How coincidental is that? Chris is back in the UK, but we have glorious weather out here. And Darren and I are trying to look at each other through the mountains. I mean, I can see his mountains, but he can just about barely see mine, I think. Am I right? Um, yeah, I can see the tail end of it, but that's a very, very nice uh, stretch of the Beskidi. So very, I, I often go to the Polish Beskidi for a spa treatment. So it's very, yeah, really nice. I love that. If we have any listeners from Medway, Gillingham's very sunny in at the moment. So, uh, yeah, it's nice here too. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, enough of us gossiping. I think we should just get uh, get down to it, really. So we'll kick off with the first question, even though Chris wants to carry on talking about Medway. No, he doesn't. No, uh, no one does. <laughs> so, Darren, tell us, what was James's early life like as the second son of King John? Uh, well... Yeah, Richard was born um, in 1209, uh, and he was, yes, as you say, the second, the second legitimate son of King John. So his brother became King Henry III when John died in 1216. Richard at that time would have been about seven. They were raised, all the children, there were five total, were raised in different households because of the security issue at that time. John was always running into difficulties with his barons and so forth. And we know the name of Richard's tutor, a fellow by the name of Roger de Coster, and who he kept in touch with Richard, they um, even into adulthood. So it appears to have been a very good relationship. And Richard first really enters the stage when he's about 16 years old. And at that time, the last English possession on the continent was Gascony in the south of France. And Henry organized an expeditionary force to go down there. And Richard was more or less the symbolic leader because he was only 16. Henry knighted him and off he went. Uh, he, had a, he had an uncle, William of Salisbury, who was more or less his guide. But we know that Richard did quite well down there, uh, was 
almost successful in uh, regaining Poitou for the crown. So he returned about two years later. He was rapturously received by Henry because it was for the most part a successful expedition. And uh, his brother made him the Earl of Cornwall around 1227. So Richard would have been about nine or 18. And so from that point on, he's more or less into adulthood. After a rise at court, he then went on crusade. How was his time in the Holy Land? So this uh, crusade that was organized, uh, the situation was that Jerusalem had been won back to the crusader kingdoms, but the truce with the Muslim sultanates was due to expire in 1239. So there was this general call for a crusade to send more or less troops to the Holy Land to be ready for any breakdown of the truce. Uh, Richard was more or less the, the leader of the English contingent, um, but the French got there first. They really made a mess of things. A lot of them ended up uh, being captured by the Egyptians. One of them, Amari de Montfort, the brother of Simon de Montfort. Um, now, the French did manage to salvage the situation by um, exploiting the divisions between the two sultanates. One was located in Damascus, the other in Cairo. And so they were able to create a very favorable treaty with the, the ones in Egypt, but suddenly they left. They, they left without implementing any of it. And this is when Richard arrives with the English contingent and he goes to the south, he fortifies defenses, he uh, organizes the release of the French prisoners, and he implements this this treaty, which actually enlarges Jerusalem to a greater extent than it was before the crusade was called. So all in all, he had a very successful um, crusade. And in fact, it turned out to be the last successful crusade to the Holy Land because the one that came after under Louis IX of France, Saint Louis, was an absolute disaster. And the last one, after him, which was organized by the Lord Edward, son of Henry III. Uh, he couldn't do very much because he only had a few, a couple hundred knights, but that almost ended in disaster when an assassin made it into his chamber. So anyway, Richard of Cornwall should be remembered as the leader of the last successful crusade to the Holy Land. That's really interesting. You say assassin, and I want to know more. Who was this assassin? Why was he there? What was the point of it? But oh, it's an excellent story, and he came this close. <laughs> do you know, Chris? I think we should. Uh, I think we should talk about this assassin. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I like. Yeah, I like right. this. Tell us about this assassin. I want to know more. You mentioned these things, and I kind of my interest gets peaked. I'm like, oh, I must know more. Tell us more about this assassin. What happened? Well. When Richard was on crusade in the Holy Land, so there was, as I mentioned, these divisions between the Muslim sultanates. So when the next crusade came in 1248-1249, there was, um, Louis had initial success and he started a march down Cairo. Anyway, everything went south, literally. And the point being is that the sultan died and there was sort of a palace revolution and this warrior class known as the Mamluks came into power. And it was from that point on that they started just pressure, putting pressure on the crusader states, taking more and more land. So by the time it comes to 1270, 1271, when Edward arrives, uh, the leaders, um, they, they've more or less pushed the crusader states to just a strip of land along the Mediterranean. And uh, they wanted to more or less finish the job. And they saw Edward as a, uh, he, he was already a legend in his, in his time when he arrived at the Crusader States. He was, of course, we know a very dynamic leader. So they more or less figured if they take him out, then that's it. It's game over. So they got an assassin in there. They had already assassinated uh, Simon de Montfort's cousin the year before. So they knew how to make these operatives work. So somehow this agent got into Edward's chamber because Edward left the command. Hey, if you got any news, send him right in. So guy came in with the news. He produced a dagger. Um, he, he stabbed Edward. The dagger was reputedly poison. Edward ended up killing him. And the legend more or less goes that his wife, Eleanor Castile, she saved him by 
you know, sucking out the poison from the wound. But uh, there, there were great doctors there in the Middle East at that time. So they probably came in, cauterized the wound somehow. Edward survived. He went on to his 35-year reign in England. So, but that's the story of the assassin. Oh, wow. That's really good. Although I'm fairly sure there are quite a few uh, Welsh and the Scots who would have preferred that the assassin had done the job right. Well, like I said, there it was it was touch and go there for a while because uh, I, I think Ed, Edward took a while to recover because he I think it was almost two months before he was able to travel again. But, uh, anyway, thereabouts. Richard also had quite a when, when he came back from the crusade, he had quite a knack for accumulating wealth. How did he do all this? Well, his brother was the king, <laughs> so. Um, when King John died, he he made no provision for Richard in his will. So everything that Richard got came from his brother, Henry, the king. And so Henry made him Earl of Cornwall, but he never gave him any kind of permanent land settlement. And this led to a lot of friction between the two brothers for several years. And it wasn't until it was about 1231 that he finally gave Richard what he wanted. And actually it was the same year that uh, he welcomed Simon de Montfort as Earl of, of Leicester. And from that point on, more or less when, when Henry, you know, they have a big patronage queue and Richard as the, let's say, all of uh, the, the loyal brother is at the head of this patronage queue. So this is how the king makes everyone happy. You know, he, he more or less gives them grants of lands or, or basic rights involved with the, the church and um, local government and so forth. And Richard is basically accumulating all these grants and lands. And so that's one source. Uh, he also had mineral resources in Cornwall, namely these, these 10 mines, but that only played uh, one part. Where he got a very bad reputation with his money and all was in what were known as crusade legacies. So the situation was more or less when Richard took his vow, which was in 1236. So basically, you need to do fundraising. And this more or less happens by preachers going out into the countryside and preaching the crusade. And they, they whip up the crowds into a religious maelstrom and they said yes i i take a vow to go to the holy land yes i'm going to the holy land. well who are these people well some are children some are very elderly people some are infirm you know they're just um they're sort of doing their things for for the cause and nobody expects them to go to the holy land but they did make this vow. So what they have to do is redeem it. In other words, pay a sum of money. And so as time goes on, um, a lot of these people just forget about the vow. But Richard and his agents don't forget about it. You know, they've got their lists. And, but you need to have more or less the sanction of the Pope, the papacy, that, okay, you can go on collecting these crusade legacies even though you're not going on crusade, you know, there's, there's really no reason for it. And the papacy was always currying Richard's favor because that's more or less their way of putting pressure on Henry when they wanted something. So they always extended his right to collect these legacies. And this went on for almost 20 years. He had his agents out there collecting. And even when the people died, didn't matter. They, he, they went to, the estate, and they said, hey, he made a crusade vow, you owe us 20 pounds, which was a lot of money back then. They might haggle a bit, end up with 10. Okay, then you go on to the next. So Richard made an awful lot of money in this way, but it created a lot of uh, deep resentment among the more or less peasants and urban class. I've got to say, all that's going through our mind right now is Robin Hood. That whole idea of the sheriff going around and collecting all of these. Uh, was it the sheriff of Rottingham? Is that, have I got that Rottingham, right? Yeah, not yeah. Rottingham. 
Nottingham, sorry. Oh my God, I'm thinking of uh, men in tights. Apologies for that one. Um, but that's all I can think of is that he's going around and collecting all of these taxes from people who just don't have the money. And Richard is still pursuing these people. You say 20 years later, even children and the elderly and people who were, uh, who were disabled. I mean, how are these people expected to pay? Well, but they did take this vow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and in those days, a vow was sacred. So it's not like today where people make promises and vows and then they just forget about it. I mean, that was a big deal. And you can imagine a lot of these people wanted to do something about it. They, they believed in heaven and hell. You know, they wanted to redeem their vows somehow. So we shouldn't really think of it more or less as, you know, Sheriff of Nottingham and taxes, but... But just the fact that Richard was that sort of fellow who kept the books and liked to clear the books. So, and this is basically he, how he made his money. He, he was a good money manager. Uh, he, he lent a lot of money to people, both clerics and, um, and secular nobility. We don't know if he received interest on those loans because that was frowned upon by the church. So, the idea of interest was never documented, but we can more or less imagine he received something in kind or maybe a kind of secret payment and so forth. But um, no, Richard was a, was a very good money manager. And so when the realm needed a new coinage in 1247, Henry said, well, he's the man for it. Also because he had the, the startup cash for it. And Richard made an astounding success of it. He he opened all these temporary mints. He he was able to acquire all the bullion, everything. I mean, I think he he minted something like um, what was it, a half million pounds worth of coins within a couple of years. And and also as his reward, Henry gave him the right to collect penalties on any currency infringement, you know, sort of cheating the exchange. So just from the recoinage itself, Richard made about 20,000 pounds profit. And we don't know how much he got from the uh, infringements. But just to give you an example, the Abbey of St. Albans was caught more or less in a technicality concerning the exchange. That's all it was. It was no attempt to deceive, but the law is the law. And Richard wanted the penalty. So they ended up having to, you know, they go through all these negotiations and the Abbey doesn't want to admit fault because it looks bad. I mean, this is a very famous religious house. So Richard was regent at this time and he ends up scratching the infraction off the book. So it looks like, okay, they settled it. But what happened in reality was they secretly paid the fine to Richard. So Nobody knows about it, but this is how Richard got all his money. He was, he knew where to find it. It's always the mark of a good statesman when they're able to uh, find the money, something our Chancellor of the Exchequer is failing to do at the moment. But in sort of his brother then rewards him for his service because he becomes Count of Poitou, Regent of England when Henry's away, and he's then offered the throne of Sicily. How does this all pan out? Henry made him Count of Poitou as sort of the incentive for going on that expedition because the French under Louis VIII, this is the same Louis whom English barons invited to be their king in place of King John. Louis VIII had organized a crusade. It got called off at the last minute. So he used the crusade to basically steal Poitou from Henry, who was underage at the time and a ward of the Pope. So when Henry launches the expedition to Gascony with Richard in command, he, he tells him, you know, look, you are the Count of Poitou. The, the French have taken it illegally. Get it back. So, and he he came quite close, but didn't, didn't, didn't make it. So that title more or less lapsed by the 1240s. Uh, Richard set his sights on becoming the Count of Provence by uh, marrying one of the daughters there. That didn't pan out. With the Regency, this, this is kind of a misunderstanding. Um, 
in 1253, King Henry III went to Gascony because it was in rebellion against the rule of Simon de Montfort, his governor down there. So Henry had to go down there and clean up that mess. And before he left, he named his wife Eleanor, Queen Eleanor, Eleanor Provence, as the regent. And he more or less added as an afterthought that Richard of Cornwall, his brother, will be her advisor. So Eleanor is the regent and Richard is more or less assisting her because Eleanor was pregnant at the time. She was five months pregnant. But she she was just as good a manager as Richard. She had tight control of the realm. Everything worked well, even... On the day she gave birth, the 25th of November, she, they were issuing orders from the chancery under her. And in this capacity, she became the first woman to attend parliament. She was the first woman to summon a parliament and uh, basically run the show, you might say. But Richard is helping her. And it is in this uh, at this moment that Henry needs a special tax because uh, it looks like there could be war down there. In, this. in a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. South of France. So Eleanor summons the parliament and they said, well, you know, okay, maybe we could offer you some money, but we would like, these are our conditions. So this comes to a very famous moment in English history. And it's one of the, probably the first great constitutional innovations. Eleanor and Richard send a letter to the sheriffs and tell them, okay, we're going to have another parliament, a special session. We want you to organize local elections. We want you to elect two knights to send them to Westminster for this special session of parliament. So this is the first instance we know on record of there actually being democracy in action in England, where elections are held for local representatives to discuss some matter or other at Westminster. Historians have always given the credit to Richard. I don't, there doesn't appear to be any compelling reason why it should have been Richard, except that he was a very good manager and administrator. And his name appears with Eleanor's on the letter that is sent to the sheriffs. But interesting is one of the letters was preserved in a chronicle of that age. And in that chronicle, only Eleanor's name appears. So if you're going to do the math and you want to give credit to somebody for this great innovation, it goes to Eleanor of Provence and not Richard of Cornwall. But having said all that, uh, they had a very um, very fruitful, effective time together. It passed without any, any major incident. Um, Eleanor ended up taking ship with, uh, with money, supplies, men to Henry. So this, this left Richard as the regent, but he wasn't the first choice from among the council because they, they sort of know him. They, you know, Richard looks after himself first and foremost, but he became the regent. He did an excellent job there. He pursued his crusade legacies, but he managed it very well. He took everything, he took, took care of everything on behalf of Henry and so forth. So when when Henry came back at the end of 1254, the realm was running as smoothly as just when he left. So Richard did very well in that capacity. So, and, um, oh, the crown of Sicily. Well, that situation was that the, the Holy Roman Empire uh, at this point uh, and the, the, the Pope, the papacy, they're at loggerheads because these emperors want to have both Germany and Sicily within their fold. Uh, 
papacy doesn't like that. They want both kingdoms to be separate. So this starts a, a nearly half century of conflict. And the way the papacy sees, uh, sees to resolve it is by having a separate king of Sicily and separate king of the Romans. Now, when I say king of the Romans, I mean the king of Germany. So in this situation, they need to find candidates for these roles. So they look to Richard of Cornwall to be the king of Sicily because he, they know he has money and they know he's very ambitious. And he is, he's very ambitious and he would like it. But the conditions in 1247 are not right. So they offer it to him again in 1250. And again, he's not, it's not just right. So they offer it a third time in 1252. Richard really negotiates for it. And in the end, he doesn't get the conditions he wants. But one of the factors that stops him is that he has a nephew. Um, his sister, Isabella, had been married to Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. Is, uh, Richard was the last of the siblings to see her alive. He, he, he visited, her, visited her in Sicily on his way home from the crusade. She died later that year in childbirth. The son who survived her, he, his name too was Henry. You know, they all have the same names. This Henry, Henry Hohenstaufen, he grew up. And it seems that he and Richard had some, I, I suspect they had some kind of relationship. And Richard did not want to infringe on Henry Hohenstaufen's right to the kingdom of Sicily, which would have happened. So this is the main reason he's backed off. But by the end of 1253, Henry Hohenstaufen has died. Some say he was poisoned because he was only 17 years old at the time. And the papacy offers this crown to King Henry III, Richard's brother, for his son, Edmund. Henry accepts it. And we later see that Richard really doesn't support Henry in this venture. I suspect because he, he regrets that he did not take it. Uh, we, the initial conditions that Henry III got for Sicily were quite favorable. For example, got a lot of money from the Pope to make it happen. Uh, the situation that comes down in history was one that it, it turned very bad, but this was years later. So I think Richard regretted not taking the throne when it was offered to him. So when the throne of Germany, King of the Romans, became vacant suddenly in 1256. Well, Richard was all for that. I mean, here was his chance. He was he was almost 50 years old. Uh, he, he was a very well-known international statesman. And all he had to show for it was the title of Earl of Cornwall. He wanted something with, you know, uh, more pizzazz to it. So uh, he definitely wanted to become King of Germany. So out on the table, we have King of Germany, Sicily. I mean, this guy is having so many opportunities, and yet he gets another opportunity, and he becomes offered the throne of the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, how do we get to this stage? Well, the, the throne of the Holy Roman Empire, so you, you had to be the King of Germany first, or the King of the Romans is what was the more or less title of it. Because to be emperor, you had to be crowned by the Pope. And this was Richard's ambition. He, you know, um, the king of Germany was an elective office. You had seven electors. Six were German. One was the Czech king of Bohemia. His name was Otakar Przemysl II. And it was these seven who elected. Now, in Richard's case, it turned out to be a split decision, you might say. Three Germans were for Richard. Three were for Alfonso of Castile. He was the king down there. And Otakar, nobody really knows where he ended up voting for, but it was Richard's understanding and his group that Otakar was for him. So there was an election held in Frankfurt. Richard was proclaimed king. He was crowned in Aachen and for what it's worth, Alfonso never even went to Germany. So, so 
Richard is crowned the, the king of the Romans, and which you need to have before the Pope is going to make you the emperor. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It was looking very good for Richard. His first trip to Germany was quite successful. Uh, he, you know, basically it mean, means he he makes a progress up the Rhine. He he takes the lordship of all the German barons, and of course he's dishing out money. One interesting point is that it seems he may have been able to talk to the the German subjects who didn't know French or English, of course, he may have been able to talk to them because presumably English and German were very similar in language in those days. So this would have given him an advantage over that Spanish Alfonso guy down there. So Richard goes back to England because what he needs more than anything is a peace treaty. There's got to be a peace treaty between England, Germany, and France. And this is the deciding factor. And this happens when, um, so the reform period begins in England, which starts off pretty well, but Simon de Montfort sees his chance to, to subjugate Henry to a council and all that. So things don't go so well after that. In any event, Richard is delayed in England, mostly because of Simon's actions. The Pope invites him. He's saying, all right, let's go. Come on, come and we'll, we'll do this thing. But Richard needs more time. He needs to collect money. He needs to make sure that England is stable enough. So he finally goes in 1260 in June, and he's, he's on his way south, and the worst luck happens. The papal forces are defeated by, well, we call them the Ghibellines. This, this was the uh, the heir of the Hohenstaufens, you know, they're still at war with each other. And so the Pope loses very badly. More or less, these are Richard's enemies too. So Richard has no safe way to get to Rome to be crowned. So he just says, well, okay, what the heck? So he goes back to England again. And um, he ends up going two more times. And all in all, he was in Germany approximately four years thereabouts, and he really made a success of it. Uh, I think in, I think had he, he, he was this close to becoming emperor, and he, he would have made a success of that too. Richard just was that kind of guy who, who knew how to, you know, he's a top flight manager, you might say, so... Anyway, didn't happen. It sounds like it was the, the empire's loss in the long run then, that he didn't get to be a proper emperor. Well, the, the thing about Richard is, you know, he was succeeded by a, uh, a Swiss baron by the name of Rudolf of Habsburg. And Rudolf and the other German princes, they did everything to sort of work against Richard's legacy, saying, you know, look, we don't need these foreigners coming in and making a mess of things. We, we Germans, we can run this right. And, but Rudolf had the same problem Richard did essentially, which was the popes kept dying. 
Now, Richard would be ready. Okay, he's going to make another stab at going to Rome, and the Pope dies. Okay, they elect a new Pope, and the Pope dies. So this was the same problem Rudolf had. He was the king of the Romans for 18 years, and I think maybe five or six popes died in root. So he never, he never received the imperial dignity either. Well, it, the, the Habsburgs went on to do make a, quite a stamp on Europe. So I don't think it's much of a loss in the long run for him. But um, yeah, that but that that came much. Those were Rudolf's descendants, uh, two or three hundred years later. Yeah. But but no, Ru, Ru, I don't think Rudolf died a very happy man. But, um, so Richard, he's had to give up on his German crown. So he goes and joins his brother in the battle. No, sorry, he, he didn't. He didn't give up on the German. He was he was the king of Germany to the very end. He was even he was even doing business with his German clients after he had a stroke. I mean, he was bedridden, but still, he was still the king of Germany all the way to the end. But he, he would later go on to join his brother in the Barons' War. What was his role in that, and how successful was he? Okay, this uh, in those in that time it was called a Barons' War because nobody else knew what to call it. But it was nothing like the the Barons' War that John King John Richard's father confronted. Yeah, the uprising against Henry the Third, which began in twelve sixty three. You really can't call this a baron's war because Simon's chief supporters were from the church. They were from they were urban dwellers. They were freemen from the country. They were peasants. It was a more or less a, a people's uprising, you might say. So, and and this is where Richard's reputation gets a little bit shady because it seems from the evidence that he more or less supported Simon de Montfort in this. Now, it's difficult to know exactly the reasons. We do know that Henry was very, very ill in the run-up to it, looked like he might not make it. Uh, there was even an obituary that appeared for him in one of the chronicles. His son, Edward, this future Edward I, the one who, was, who faced the assassin in the Holy Lamb, Edward had a very bad reputation at this time. He was just seen as, uh, uh, you know, sort of more or less a hooligan. And so he did not have a lot of support. So the idea is more or less, well, could Richard become king in place of Henry? You know, so he'd be king of England, he'd be king of Germany, so forth. Uh, it's, we really don't know so much about it, but in the end, uh, Richard ended up on Henry's side after uh, Simon was, Simon had established his regime. But Henry and Edward played a very smart game of, of uh, you know, wheedling away at his support. So when that happened, Richard said, all right, well, Simon had his chance, so now I'm, I'm going to stand by my brother. So this goes on. There's arbitration. And in the spring, late winter, the spring of 12... 64, it becomes war again. This time, Richard is firmly on Henry's side. They start, they have very great success. I mean, they really have Simon on the ropes. They storm Northampton, and it all comes down to the Battle of Lewis on the 14th of May, 1264. And Richard is commanding the center line of the Royalist forces outside Lewis. Henry's on the left. Now, why is Richard in the center? I think this is his big moment. He, he wants this battle. Henry, Henry has always been proud of peace. If you asked Henry, you said, okay, you're king 56 years. What is your greatest achievement? He said, peace. I've given my people peace. The peasants can till their fields. The clerics can, can uh, run their churches. Everybody doesn't have to worry about all these mercenaries going back and forth and robbing and, and destroying everything. So Henry always wants peace, but Richard is pushing for this engagement. I think the reason why is he wants to make a statement back in Germany because first he has German mercenaries with him and he, he needs a great battle. He needs a victory to go back to Germany and say, all right, look, I am the new Richard the Lionheart or whatever. 
And this will give him great prestige and, and finally get him this, the Holy Roman, the crown of the Holy Roman Empire. So he wants the battle. It starts off, it's, it's fantastic success for the royalists because Edward, who's on the right, he, he completely crushes Simon's wing. All Edward has to do is wheel his forces to the left, slam into Simon's flank, and it's over. But Edward was Edward in those days, and he just took off. So he basically left the two royalist divisions exposed, and Simon had a sort of reserve division he threw in. Long story short, he ended, Simon ended up crushing the royalist line, and Richard fled the battlefield. He found um, refuge in a windmill that was along the way to the walls of Lewis, and that's where... Simon's men, the Montfortians, found him. They, you know, more or less surrounded the windmill. He comes out. He's covered in flour and dirt and grime. And they're all just laughing at him. Oh, look at the king of Germany now. Oh, you know, they put him in chains. And, and Henry wasn't beaten. He retreated to a priory. He set up a very good defensive perimeter. This was bad news for Simon because if he ends up attacking the king's person, he's basically, you know, he, he has no, no standing anymore with anyone. So he needs Henry to come out alive or to surrender. And he tells him, come out or I'm going to take your brother and I'm going to chop his head off. So, <laughs> well, the end result is uh, they worked out some conditions Henry came out and um, basically he's a captive of Simon's regime for the next year. But he did get conditions that more or less led to Simon's downfall a year later. During Simon's regime, Richard was completely ignored. He was locked away. He was completely forgotten about. And the reason this is, is because Simon and his men felt Richard had betrayed them. He was on their side in the first offensive in 1263. They, they even camped their army in, in Richard's estates in London. So when Richard switched sides, they, they thought it was a terrible betrayal. So they, you know, this is more or less Simon's revenge against Richard. So, um, and Richard is in Kenilworth when the Battle of Isham takes place on the 4th of August, 1265. Edward by this time has escaped. He's raised an army. He has trapped Simon. They completely destroy the Montfortian forces. And, you know, we, we know that they, they surrounded Simon. They chopped up his body, mutilated it. And so the surviving Montfortians, when they went back to Kenilworth, where Richard was being locked up, they wanted to chop him up in revenge. Fortunately, Simon's son was cool-headed about it and said, no, we don't want to do that. And so he more or less saved his uncle Richard from that ignominy. So, Although it's, uh, it's never a good look when uh, any general or commander gets pulled out of a hiding place by the victorious enemy. Especially oh, they, they made up lots of songs about Richard. I mean, it, it was a humiliating spectacle for him. These, one of these songs even survives to this day. Want to sing us the song? Oh, well, it's actually, it's in Middle English. I, I, I put it in my book, but I, you know, I, I don't think I'll take a stab at Middle English. But anyway, it's, it's in there if you want to. It's with the Middle English and Modern English, so have a go at it. <laughs> I, I have the same when I was reading my boys, the, uh, the Lord of the Rings, and it got to one of the elven songs. I went, you know what, I'm just going to skip through this bit. There's no way. I don't blame you. But it wasn't all about Richard's life isn't all kingdoms and fighting. What was his family life like? As I'm, I'm presuming he probably didn't get that much time for one. Well, first there's there's this contrast because his brother, King Henry III, was probably the most endearing family man of any of England England's monarchs. I mean, Henry had um he had five children, loved them all dearly, did he and his wife, Eleanor Provence, did everything for them. And they didn't grow up to be like spoiled brassy. They grew up to be a very close, supportive family. And when you compare that to 100 years before, when you had Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, 
and with Richard Lineheart and, and John, and they're all fighting with each other and imprisoning each other. And that was just a complete mess. So Henry III and Eleanor Provence had the model royal family. And Richard, he actually got married before Henry. He, he married the daughter of William Marshall. Her name was Isabella. She was a widow at that time, and she was nine years older. She had six children. She was said to be very beautiful, but he married her basically because she was supremely rich. She got a very huge dower from her husband, the Earl of Gloucester. And so they got married. Uh, Richard would have been 21, 22 about then. He, they had four children and one son survived. The others died in infancy. It all in all looked like a very good marriage. But uh, when the first two children died, it seems that Richard asked for an annulment of his marriage. The worry was that Isabella was too old to have more children and he needed to have an heir. I mean, uh, that's just the way it was when you were a, a, a great baron at that time. Probably she said, yeah, you're absolutely. Well, it, it ended up she did have another child. We, <laughs> he got a letter from the Pope saying, you know what, just hang in there. Everything will be all right. And by the time this letter arrives, Isabella is about to give birth again to this son, Henry of Almain, who, who does indeed survive to adulthood. So that was a very good marriage. She died in childbirth when she was 40, and Richard was completely distraught. He was in Cornwall at the time, and he just raced. She was in Berkhamstead, and he just raced there to, well, to deal with it. Uh, she asked to be buried next to her first husband, and Richard said, I'm not having any of that. <laughs> no chance. He's going to bury her in the, the new family abbey founded by his father. But he did have uh, masses said for her soul. It, it, it looked, it was a very good marriage. So she died. Richard was a widower. And his brother, Henry III, and sister-in-law, Eleanor Provence, they set him up with her sister, Sancia of Provence. And the idea being is that Sancia was in such line among the sisters that, that when the, her father, the Count of Provence, died, he had no sons, that Sancha and Richard would receive Provence. He would become the Count of Provence instead of Count of Poitou. That didn't pan out. Uh, his marriage to Sancha, she was said to be the most beautiful. She was 16 about there. Richard would already have been well into his 30s. It's Their marriage lasted approximately 18 years. It... It seems to have been strained. Uh, the other, they had children who died. Uh, only one survived to adulthood. Uh, but Richard was away a lot, and he was a well-known womanizer. He had, uh, well, latest I could count, about six children out of wedlock. And, well, I don't think Sancia went for that very well. In fact, she died in November 1261. She was about 33, 34 at the time. And Richard wasn't even there at her bedside. I mean, he had business in London. And, uh, and at around this time when she died, another little Richard was born. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, that, was a more, that was probably a strained marriage. He... Also, Richard had no commemoration set for her. Her, her stepson, Henry, did. Uh, Henry III, Eleanor Provence, they had masses said for Sancia so, but Richard didn't. So take that for what it's worth. So then he is a widower again. And in Germany, on his final trip, he meets a 15-year-old girl by the name of Beatrix of Falkenberg. And she is the most, most beautiful of the lot. He was 40, 40, 41, 42 years older than her. And 
he's basically marrying a daughter of a German noble family, more or less to put down roots in Germany. I mean, he, he still has plans to be real king of Germany, to be the Holy Roman Emperor. And he brings Beatrice back to England, I think, to show her off. <laughs> and one of the chroniclers said, well, why did he marry her? Well, you know, Richard is Richard. He, he likes the girls, you know. He's always just pumped up, you might say. So anyway, Beatrice is with him to the end. Uh, he dies three years. He has a stroke and dies three years later. And um, so... Anyway, that's so he had two sons, first son, the son by his first wife, Henry of Almain, and the second son by his second wife, Sancha, was Edmund of Cornwall. And that in itself becomes this tragic story. Henry of Almain is coming back from crusade. He's in Italy, and Edward asks him to try and reconcile the sons of Simon de Montfort after this terrible, uh, this blood feud going on between them. These sons had made a stellar career in, in Italy for the new king of Sicily, who was Charles of Anjou. And, uh, well, it ends up that the two, the Montfort brothers and their guys, ended up hacking Henry of Almain to death in a church in front of everybody. So another scandal involved with these Plantagenets. <laughs> Yeah, they they certainly get a get about and probably spend the rest of the rest of the day chatting about not just the Plantagenets but Richard. He's been a, a really interesting uh, subject. But Darren, we just wanted to thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, could you remind everyone what the book's title is and uh, where they can get it from? Sure, the book is called Richard of Cornwall, the English King of Germany, and um, so it was released uh, last month by Amberley. And um, it's got great, I put some great images inside, also with captions that fully describe the image. So if you're in a bookstore and you pick it up, you can just browse the middle section and walk away with almost a good understanding of what's in the rest of the book. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we'll have to have you on again sometime to delve deeper into the Plantagenets. It's something that we don't cover that much. So uh, thank you very much. Okay, fine. Thanks for having me. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.